Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Niga. Today we finish up a week in which we have spent our time covering the Democratic uh, National Convention, which of course ended last night uh, online. Um, and uh, we are turning our attention in the week ahead to covering the Republican Convention in the same way we did this week with the Democrats. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, so I want to get right to our panel today. Uh, Jim Galloway, my partner on Mondays and Fridays, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Uh, you read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. You know, Jim, I was thinking about the fact that there are things about going to conventions over the years. In addition to covering the news and the events, uh, there are little rituals. And, and I can't help but think this morning, Jim, that this is under normal circumstances, we'd all be kind of packing our bags, checking out of our hotel rooms, heading to the airport, maybe catching a flight to Charlotte, or if we're lucky, getting a couple days at home. Uh, we're just kind of sitting around in our living room in our pajamas uh, uh, covering conventions this way, Jim. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in a way, it's a lot more comfortable. I mean, you're not semi-comatose, yeah. which is what we would be. Uh, and, 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 yeah, and, yeah. and I will tell you what, you know— I, uh, I can't. I can't. I can't tell you exactly how many political conventions I've been to, but I can name at least three that I left sick as a dog because of a virus just kind of, just just jumping <laughs> through that that whole mess. Glad glad you're healthy at this point. Patricia Murphy understands uh, covering conventions as well. She, of course, is a syndicated columnist who. Uh, whose columns appear in Roll Call. She has uh, been appearing in USA Today uh, lately. And, of course, previously she worked on Capitol Hill for two Georgia senators, uh, the legendary Sam Nunn and later Max Cleland. Patricia, uh, did you miss not being in uh, Milwaukee this week? Did you miss all of the uh, uh, excitement, I guess is the word, for covering a convention in person? I did miss it. I love a convention. I mark, this is not normal, I'll tell you, I kind of mark my life by quadrennial um, measurements, uh, presidential election years. And I sort of, rem I think back to Los Angeles and Minneapolis, like those are the good times for me. I missed it. I, I missed it so much. I would love to be doing the Republicans next week as well, but I'm, I may be in a tiny minority among journalists, but I would have loved it, but I understand. <laughs> Well, we're, we're glad that you are here with us this morning. Uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, a political science professor and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for Race and Difference at Emory University, is with us as well. Good morning, uh, Andre. I know that uh, you don't go as a journalist, but you, too, have certainly spent your time at national political conventions. So I figured out finally how to do the conventions in 2016, and I had a great time, and I was looking forward to figuring out how I was going to make my way to Milwaukee and Charlotte this year. But I have to admit, <laughs> I kind of like the new format, and I, I'm kind of okay with it, you know, if they choose to, you know, keep it all virtual going forward. I have to say that on, and on this show this week, a number of panelists have said they really think this uh, virtual format has been a loser, but that's not what our listeners are saying. I've gotten any number of notes from listeners who say they've really enjoyed uh, watching the convention this way. So it'll be interesting to see how that moves forward for the Republicans. But we're also really happy to have with us today uh, Robert Costa. Uh, he, he, of course, is a national political reporter for The Washington Post. Uh, but he is also the host of one of the most storied uh, shows in uh, television news, Washington Week. Uh, Robert, the longest-running primetime public affairs political show, I think, on television. You began back in, what, 1967, Robert? That's exactly right. Great to be with you. Thank you for uh, being How long have you, by the way, you uh, can watch Washington Week on GPB Knowledge. And if you go to our website, it's, it's on uh, several times uh, in the days over the weekend. And so check it out there. Robert, you've been the host of that show for almost three years. Do I have that right? Three and a half years. 
in early 2017. Oh, it's been that long. And and so being the host of a TV question. show during the Trump era is a, a totally calm experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. I, I'm just curious about it. I, I you obviously have had a, a career on television as an analyst uh, for a while before you began hosting. How do you like doing this hosting job? Do you enjoy it? I enjoy it. I, I enjoy having the conversation. I think politics really is a conversation. And your program, so does mine. And so much of politics is not just covering an event and, and noting history as it happens, but just processing it, trying to understand the context and so I'm glad that public media exists so we can have these kind of uh, lengthier, just uh, without partisanship, and really just try to dig in. Couldn't agree more. And I, I really do appreciate it. I know you're getting set to do your show tonight, so I appreciate your taking time to be with us uh, today. So while you've got the ball, Robert, let me start with you. I uh, Yesterday, I sort of resisted a, uh, a line that was uh, uh, popping up in media relating to Joe Biden's speech last night. One of them was um, this, the cliche, this will be the most important speech of his political career. We hear that in a lot of cases, uh, whether it's a male or female political leader. Uh, but the other one was, uh, this is the speech that Joe Biden has, uh, has spent his whole life waiting to give. And, and I sort of resisted going there with that. And But you know what? When I heard that speech last night, I think that's correct. I, I, I said on our show yesterday, I remember his acceptance, or rather his uh, announcement speech at the Wilmington Amtrak station in 1987. And I pulled that speech up this morning, and there are many echoes of what he said last night in that speech going back to 1987. So in fact... Um, this really was the speech he'd been waiting to give his entire career, Robert. On one level, it was certainly the culminating year that began in the early 1970s with that Senate race, the tragedy in his family. So it was a personal narrative conclusion uh, and maybe a new beginning in some ways. But it was also a speech that really met the moment, the moment of President Trump's America I think back to an interview I had with President Trump, then candidate Trump in 2016, Bob Woodward and I sat down with the candidate at his hotel in Washington, and he came up with this phrase during our interview. He said, real power, I don't even want to say the word, real power is fear. And that underscored his message for the whole campaign, fear, power uh, on so many different issues, going, shattering norms. And then to hear from Vice President Biden on Thursday night, speaking to a silent room, quote, too much fear. And that difference in these candidates, they both have their own personal styles and their own personal stories that have brought them here to this crossroads. But it really is a choice now in President Trump's vision for America in Biden's own. So, uh, Jim Galloway, one of the things I think Robert just said that's absolutely correct, we came away last night understanding uh, without any question anymore, the stark contrast of a vision that's being presented for the future of America, Jim. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go go with Mr. Mr. Costa's uh, assessment. It, you know, this is a contest now of, of, of fear versus empathy. Uh, I was. I think I was. I've been struck by how biographical uh, both uh, Kamala Harris's address was and Joe Biden's address. Biden last night. You know, he took me. He took me back to 1992. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, Bill Clinton's uh, 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 line was was I feel your pain, except Biden took it a step further. Uh, he said, "I have felt your pain and I have survived." Uh, you know, speaking about the death of his his, his wife and daughter, and the, and the loss of his son Bo. Uh, Patricia, one of the things that I found interesting last night was here's a, Biden got up and gave a very strong speech, ju just from a presentational point of view. Obviously, he was very impassioned. 
uh, he spoke with great strength in his voice. And, and it, it made me realize that President Trump, who's been calling him slow Joe Biden, sleepy Joe Biden. We, Patricia, we know that uh, one of the most important things you can do in politics is to uh, underplay expectations. Uh, well, uh, uh, President Trump has set a very low bar for who Joe Biden is. And so it might not have been hard to surpass it, but he certainly last night uh, had made us question whether the notion of sleepy or slow Joe Biden is a correct way for the president to be describing him. Yeah, well, I think even Joe Biden had helped uh, everyone set some low expectations leading up to this speech. Um, he has not been as animated or, I think, as just unabashedly energetic as we had seen him in the past. And he did stumble on some of his uh, campaign speeches and statements earlier in the campaign. But last night, you felt like he was just totally in the pocket. And it wasn't because he had rehearsed it properly or because he had gotten a good speech written for him. I think he really felt it. And I think he really connected with it. And it was, I heard many people say it was the best speech he's ever given. I think it was certainly the most important and it was totally effective. And um, based on, you know, playing off of what Robert said, I think it, it is a choice. And it, the candidates are saying this is a choice between hope and fear. And um, Joe Biden is somebody who I think put it out there. He said, we can find the light again. And on the exact same day yesterday, President Trump in Pennsylvania said, imagine the mayhem of what will happen if the Democrats win again. So it's imagine the mayhem versus we will find the light. It's a very clear choice, and it's been put in front of voters very starkly last night. I mean, I think that the the, the, the choices and the contrasts are clear, and the Democrats, um, you know, went out of their way to try to provide the contrast. I can't help but think about this in the context of political science theory about, in part, why incumbents tend to be advantaged. And there are lots of reasons why they're advantaged, but one of the reasons is because you know in an incumbent what you're going to get. Um, and what Democrats are hoping is that uh, voters remember what they're going to get with Donald Trump based on what they've seen happen in the last three and a half years, and particularly what they've seen in the last three months. So when Trump wants to try to uh, act like he's the outsider again, he has to remember he's the insider. Um, and so he says mayhem. Well, that's going to be compared to how people perceive this current moment. And if they think that this is complete chaos, right, Trump hopes that they are more afraid of what they would get under Donald Trump, um, under a Joe Biden administration. But what Democrats are hoping is that they think that this is terrible and that there's no way that you should go with this now, which is why you saw all the outreach to Republicans and to independent voters. And I think it's actually also really interesting. Usually part of the reason why challengers are in such a disadvantage in, in campaigns against incumbents is that they're making promises and they really have no basis for saying this. Like you don't have a track record by which you can compare them to the incumbent. And Joe Biden doesn't quite have the same track record in terms of having certain titles, but because he is such a known quantity and because he's been vice president before, we have a much better sense of how we think he's going to govern based on that nearly that 50 years of, of public life and that past behavior that actually puts him, I think, in a better position relative to other challengers to incumbents. Let's listen to uh, just one uh, soundbite uh, uh, of the speech last night. To uh, If you didn't watch it, if you haven't been able to watch the news this morning, uh, listen to just a, a little bit of what Joe Biden said. Here he was at the very beginning of his speech accepting the nomination. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. And make no mistake, united we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. We'll choose hope over fear, facts over fiction, fairness over privilege. So it's with great honor and humility, I accept this nomination for President of the United States of America. So uh, starting off with a, a, a very strong statement uh, about, again, what we've talked about, light versus darkness. Robert, I, I thought there was a, a line in uh, Matt Flegenheimer's piece in The New York Times uh, this morning about Biden. He says this. 
There is some irony, Democrats concede, in the idea that Mr. Biden prevailed because voters found him comforting and familiar. Through his years in presidential politics, his longevity is generally served to remind his skeptics of all they believe he's gotten wrong. He voted to authorize use of military force in Iraq, came to regret it. He presided over the committee that subjected Anita Hill to demeaning and invasive questioning in the Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings. He helped craft tough-on-crime legislation that many criminal justice experts now associate with mass incarceration. So as the campaign moves forward, uh, those elements of his biography are not forgotten, of course. He will have to contend with uh, many of them, yes? Those elements are not forgotten, but they've been put on a shelf, uh, politically speaking, this coalition Ooh. he's putting together. And that coalition was on display throughout the entire Democratic National Convention. And it ranges from Republicans who are uneasy about President Trump, like former Ohio Governor John Kasich, to avowed Democratic socialists in the Democratic ranks, or Bernie Sanders of Vermont. And all of them are united by this thread, uh, this effort to oust Donald Trump from office, president in the White House. And that's papered over for the time being, some of these concerns about Biden's record and his past. Uh, but those is, and those issues will come rearing back if he does win the White House. And you'll see people like Representative Ocasio-Cortez or Senator Sanders, an interventionist who have different perspectives on domestic and foreign policy to really uh, fight the Biden approach uh, but for now, they're all. Uh, Andre, you wrote the biography of uh, or, uh, Cory Booker, or certainly wrote a book about how he handled himself in Newark. Uh, I thought he had a very funny moment. We had a we had a, 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 a an event last night, a video during the convention, with Cory Booker led in a discussion all of the rivals for the Democratic nomination. And I don't want to play a lot of it, but I do think the beginning of it uh, is worth hearing, and it relates a little bit to what Robert's talking about in terms of the coalition. I am very excited to present to you a group of people that ran in the 2020 Democratic primary against Joe Biden. You can think of this sort of like survivor on the out interviews of all the people that got voted off the island. <laughs> well, Andrew, we know that Cory Booker has a great sense of humor, but he brought together all of the rivals who uh, Robert Costa just talked about. How convinced are you that that alliance will hold uh, through the uh, election? And will the, especially the younger voters who were enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders, will they turn out, will other voters turn out, uh, or, are, or is there a disenchantment with Biden that might suppress that vote? So, um, you know, first, I, I, I will take a point of personal privilege to say that as my friend, I actually thought Corey did a great job sort of moderating that interview. And so, you know, if he ever leaves politics, he could actually have a great career in media as a host. I actually thought he did a really, really good job. Um, but, you know, I think the surrogates are going to hold. I think they, they understand what's at stake. I, they're still going to have to be a hard sell to people who are skeptical. And part of that is just the normal job of campaigning. Um, we're seeing younger groups of people who demand that they get attention. So they're used to in their commercial lives, they're used to in their educational lives, getting things that are personalized and specialized for them. And they want it here. And I think that they have a really legitimate claim to having policy sort of attention directed toward them in specific ways and not to just be pandered to. Um, and so I think that there's still a sell. There's also going to have to be a strategic sell. Um, and, you know, there's still some work that needs to be done there that in that targeted campaigning, there are people who really do believe, and this is the thing that, that kind of gives me pause for this hope that we're going to end up in this postpartisan world. I don't think that we're there yet and our mindset is there yet. There's still people who think that the perfect is the, um, it, it, the good is the enemy of the perfect. And they expect that unless I agree 100% with somebody that, you know, therefore I can't align myself with them. And, and, and this is a time for older, more experienced voters and politicians and tacticians to walk alongside younger people and explain sort of uh, where incrementalism isn't bad, where compromise isn't a dirty word, um, and also where sometimes you're not going to get the perfect candidate, so you go with the one that's closest to you and explain strategically why that makes sense. 
Um, you know, there are people who are still saying that Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden represent just the one and half a dozen of the other. And for a lot of people, that's really not true. And they're just going to have to make a case to people to explain why that's not true and why people should, you know, alter their behavior or their intentions about perhaps not participating in an election or perhaps wasting a vote on a candidate who uh, may not have a chance of winning and could potentially play spoiler. Yeah, I think also um, when, Audrey, you talk about uh, some people being skeptical, it was very clear throughout the campaign that national Democrats in the Biden campaign have made the judgment that the people who are skeptical who they must win over are uh, moderate Republicans and independents, um, most likely many of those suburban moms that we keep hearing about, suburban women. And so that's why um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is undeniably a superstar among progressives, got about a minute um, to speak. And John Meacham felt like he talked for half an hour last night. We certainly heard from a number of Republicans. We've seen the Biden campaign rolling out endorsements from Republicans, Republican national security leaders. Um, and Joe Biden is selling what is really a nonpartisan message, though it can certainly be um, appealing to partisans, even partisan Republicans, but who are not supporters of Donald Trump. And so I think that's uh, what's crucial. He said, I may be a Democratic candidate, but I will be an American president. And I think if people, some people are um, looking at changing their position on President Trump, if they voted for President Trump the first time, um, their criticism is that he has not been a president for the entire country, but specifically not just, not even for Republicans, but for people who are loyal to Donald Trump. And I think that's the contrast that the campaign, the Biden campaign is putting forward. Hey, Bill, I was going to jump in there, but but Andra, is, I think, wants, wants to add something here. Well, I mean, I, Andra, you know, go I, ahead. I agree with you. I want to kind of push that a little bit further. I mean, it was very clear that they were trying to reach out to independent and Republican voters who were turned off by Trump. Um, and I think part of that is this notion of being bipartisan. And that raises some really important philosophical questions about what to do when you are convinced about the righteousness of your cause and about whether or not you need to be persuasive. And I think that we're going to have to have a conversation about what it means to be convinced of your policy position, but you haven't actually won the war of persuasion yet because you think you're right and therefore you don't need to try to persuade people about what's going on there. But I think the other strategy in terms of reaching to the center is because I think Democrats, given the specter of you know potential voter suppression, are looking not just for a win, but they're looking for a decisive, overwhelming win that could be decided quickly, even if all the votes haven't been counted yet. And that could potentially overcome any attempt to try to suppress votes, change votes, or do anything else that's bad. And so the only way that that's going to happen is if this tent is wide and it includes people who are not necessarily, you know, identified with the Democratic Party or the left side of the ideological spectrum. Yeah. Instead of the word bipartisan, I would use I would use existential. I, I, I can't I can't remember how many times that I've I, I counted that word being used over 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 these four days that 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 Trump re, uh, represents an existential threat to the nation. I mean, that, and that that allows you to do as, as as Robert was saying, it allows you to shelve Joe Biden's past. It allows you to, to paper over your, your differences that you ha might have with progressives. And it kind of, ex it, it, it kind of underlines the importance that, 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 that leaders like James Clyburn of South Carolina played in this convention. I mean, you, uh, I, 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 did he, uh, he, had, he, had, he had one speaking role on opening night, but he was, uh, he was ever present on the, on the cable news shows try, you know, trying to explain that, uh, to, to younger voters what, what, this, uh, what this election was all about. Uh, Robert, I want to. We got to get to a break in a minute here, but um, want to move on and talk about what we expect to ha unfold next week, and, and and talk a little bit about how it what happened this week might influence what Republicans do. But before we get there, just give us, if you would, your quick summation about what you think Democrats were able to accomplish in their virtual convention through the week. What do you think they left us with? Democrats were able to patch together a party that had been fractured during a contentious primary process. They were able to make clear the stakes in their view about not only the partisanship uh, and uh, 
for the Republicans, but about their view of the country. To Jim's point, it really was about presenting an existential threat to the American democracy character of President Trump. And everything else was secondary to that central goal. And 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 how do you think they did in trying to make this happen virtually? I mean, as I said earlier, we got a lot of very positive response from our listeners who said they really liked this virtual convention. How did how did you receive it? You obviously a veteran of covering conventions too. It was positive in the sense that they did the best they could under the circumstances but it lacked the electricity that a normal convention, you think to President Obama, then State Senator Obama in 2004, or Mario Cuomo in the 1980s, these keynote addresses galvanize a party and bring everyone together. Uh, that just wasn't there because of the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that's a really uh, interesting point. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. When we come back, uh, let's talk about uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms' role uh, in the convention uh, very briefly. And, and then let's move it forward and talk about what we expect from Republicans next week. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Dr. Andra Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, Jim Galloway, and Washington Week host and Washington Post national political correspondent Robert Costa uh, join us. Robert, I meant to mention when we were talking about the attempt to uh, uh, bring together the liberal and more moderate wings of the party, you had a really good piece in uh, the Post on Monday. You'd uh, interviewed uh, uh, Bernie Sanders in a, in a long piece. We ought to post a link to that on our social media. But one of the things you uh, tell us is that it was former President Obama who played a good role in bringing Sanders and Biden together uh, bef- even before uh, Sanders had formally suspended his bid. And you also say that Sanders had already forged a bond with Biden himself more than he ever did with Clinton. Um, and And so... There is something, there is a natural connection there that will serve the liberal wing of the party and and Joe Biden uh, well as they move forward. I wanted to point that out, uh, Robert. I appreciate that. Interesting for me as a reporter to sit down with Senator Sanders this week, because as much as this convention was about countering President Trump, also a peek into the Democratic Party at this moment. And the Sanders experience, a five-year journey from the announcement on Capitol Hill in 2015 when no one seemed to attend, even tourists seemed to shrug uh, at this random senator announcing, he has changed democratic politics. He has brought issues like uh, free college and uh, universal health care and Medicaid for of the party to the fore of the national debate. And as I wrote in that story, he may end up being a figure in American political, Larry Goldwater, the former Republican nominee in 1964, who lost in a landslide to LBJ, but changed the, the way the Republican Party thinks of G and eventually paved the way through his own efforts for Reagan to be elected in 1980. And if this country moves in a democratic socialist direction on, or other issues, it's the Sanders campaign, often a lonely struggle uh, that could deserve some credit. Yeah, really an interesting observation, I think. Um, Andre, you mentioned uh, uh, the effort that's going to be made now to have older voters mentor younger ones, get them to go out to the polls, make sure they understand the stakes are really high. Uh, that's certainly something that Mayor Bottoms, in her uh, speech last night, uh, really, she didn't talk about young people specifically, but she certainly talked about the importance of the vote as she led off a tribute to John Lewis. Let's just listen to a little of Mayor Bottom's speech. People often think that they can't make a difference like our civil rights icons. But every person in the movement mattered. Those who made the sandwiches, swept the church floors, stuffed the envelopes. 
They too changed America and so can we. The baton has now been passed to each of us. We've cried out for justice. We have gathered in our streets to demand change. And now we must pass on the gift John Lewis sacrificed to give us. We must register and we must vote. I want to get uh, all of you to weigh in on this. Uh, Andrew, we've talked about it on the show before, that one of the things that we were, I think, many people who loved John Lewis, and that was Republicans and Democrats uh, in Georgia, certainly, and well beyond, uh, that they were happy about, is that John Lewis did get to walk through Black Lives Matter Plaza and see young, white, black, Hispanics coming together and demanding racial justice. And, and I think Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, sort of sums all that up in how she talked last night. Well, I, I think she did sum that up. And I think that, you know, he very much passed the torch on to a younger generation and said, you know, our generation has done what we can now. It's time for, for you to take over and you have my support in this. But I think she was also speaking to people who think that perhaps you only need to do the extra political um, as opposed to engaging in formal politics via voting. And so this is, you know, another appeal to tell people that your vote matters and that it counts. She also tapped into themes. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting was to hear sort of the way that morality was invoked throughout this convention. This is something that we're usually accustomed to seeing in Republican campaigns. But they talked about values and character. And I found myself picking whatever value theme was kind of most prevalent each night of the convention. Um, and, and last night, it was about humility. I mean, it comes through in different ways whether we're talking about empathy or decency. And so humility and leadership were there. And so it was the idea that that Joe Biden um, is empathetic because he's humble. He doesn't think about himself as being better than others. And he also isn't afraid to actually get down and, and, and interact with people uh, regardless of their station in life. So the notion that, you know, you know, that he knows the train conductor by name or the elevator operator by name and the fact that the work that women who were stuffing envelopes and running mimeograph machines in the civil rights movement um, were what made Martin Luther King what he was is a really important thing for everybody to realize that they have a role to play and that it's important for them and that he honors that and that Donald Trump wouldn't, I think is also a really important kind of point to, to, to emphasize here. Yeah, I think also um, my big takeaway from Joe Biden last night and from all of those testimonials about him, um, there's a concept in medicine called the wounded healer, and it's that the doctor who has been wounded or sick himself uh, can better heal a patient who is struggling with those same things. And Joe Biden, um, in a lot of the ways that FDR was the wounded healer after he had had his own struggles and then told a country in the Great Depression, I can get you out of this. Um, I think that's how they were framing Joe Biden, that it's <clears throat> about more than politics. It's about healing the country. Um, and all his testimonials about his son and his family um, spoke to his character, but also about his ability to weather a storm and to help those around him, those four granddaughters, to get through that. And I was just amazed at how those girls um, were so happy after everything they've been through and joking that they just let their grandpa's uh, phone calls go to voicemail sometimes. I think it really um, showed that he has kept that family together, and they're just totally normal. They let it go to voicemail. So it was a surprisingly um, very emotional night for something that could have just been a giant Zoom call. Yeah, yeah, Bill. We've, we've, we've talked. About, we've we've talked about Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, and 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 kind of passing the torch. And but I want I, I, I want to I want to kind of emphasize what Patricia was saying about these pers this personal connection that was that was uh, uh, kind of the hallmark of 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 Biden's speech last night. And and and, and I want to give it just this tremendous shout out to thirteen year old Hayden Bra uh, uh, Hayden Bra yeah. Bradington. Just uh, that was yeah. that was to me that Very was that that was the highlight of the evening. I think uh, the young man who uh, Biden talked to at one of the last uh, events he was able to attend before the lockdown, who has been a lifelong who is a young boy has struggled with stuttering, and he said Joe Biden uh, helped him uh, feel better about a, a, a something that he's dealt with his his whole life. Um, all right. By the way, uh, 
character certainly was uh, the key to the entire week, it seemed to me. I, and very briefly, I want to go back to what I said at the very top of the show. I mentioned that yesterday that probably the single most moving uh, presidential announcement event I attended in, in all of my years of doing this sort of stuff was being in Wilmington, Delaware uh, in 1987. Biden gives his speech, gets on the Amtrak, which he wrote every day for uh, uh, back and forth, two hours both ways so that he could be home after he had started his life in the Senate with his boys after the death of his uh, wife and daughter in that awful car crash. But the reason I said there were echoes of the speech that he gave then is here's what he said. He said, for too long, and this is 87, we have sacrificed personal excellence and moral values to the mere, mere accumulation of material things. For too long in this society, we've celebrated unrestrained individualism over common community. For too long as a nation, we have been lulled by the anthem of self-interest for a decade led by Ronald Reagan. Self-aggrandizement has been the full-throated cry of our society. Got mine, get yours, what's in it for me? So, I mean, very definitely, he was talking about very similar things back then to the things he uh, seems to care about today, none of which is to say that he is not a flawed candidate who we are going to watch very closely to see how he unrolls his uh, policies uh, and uh, uh, runs his campaign in the weeks ahead. All right. I, I want to ask you all a, a, another question. Jim, let me start with you. Um, Biden's speech was applauded by Democrats and Republicans uh, last night. Fox News commentators uh, were impressed with the way he spoke. So you're Donald Trump and his team, and you're thinking about the upcoming week, and you're specifically thinking about the speech that President Trump will give next Thursday night. If Joe Biden has set the table for taking the moral high ground, for being a man of character in contrast with Donald Trump, what kind of speech do you write for President Trump? Do you double down on the themes of divisiveness and uh, mobilizing uh, the disenfranchised white voters who are driven by fear and anger? And then, or do you somehow try to insert in that some sense that you too are a person of integrity and moral character? How do you, what would you, how do you deal with that, Jim? Well, number one, I'm not sure that I'm I'm not sh sure that on the on the uh, in terms of of empathy, uh, Donald Trump wants to uh, contrast himself to to Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, and and look, yeah. I, I think I think everything that we've we, we've learned about uh, Donald Trump really since 2015 is 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 uh, what what Robert was talking uh, early on in the show was that this is this is about he, he is about fear, and. I think what you're going to see is uh, Donald Trump in many ways uh, portraying uh, empathy as weakness, and that and, and that to show weakness is a bad thing. Uh, th that is that is his Robert, worldview. Robert, what do you think? I'm told from my sources inside the White House that this whole the Republicans is going to be about. President Trump celebrating President Trump and that this isn't so much about the it's about President Trump at the center at the White House such an unusual setting for a political convention call it that a gathering to kick off the campaign season but Bill just to something you said about that Biden 87 when you listen to that language from Vice President Biden you really remember about how much Biden point of view was influenced by the Kennedys. I mean, that that those remarks could have been delivered by Bobby Kennedy or John Kennedy. And Biden is comes out of that post-Kennedy era of Democrats who wanted to speak to the middle class, uh, a little bit more moderate. When you think about what is a Kennedy Democrat, I think Joe Biden would be part of that uh, in a more hawkish on foreign policy, a little bit more moderate on domestic policy. And in a sense, the Kennedy Democrats become a relic in American politics, one of the last lions of that ilk. Andra, Patricia, both of you weigh in on what we might expect next week. I'm really curious 
about the staging and sort of what rhetoric looks like in the age of social distancing with Donald Trump. Um, I even remember very distinctly being um, in, in the combat uh, center in, in 2016 and thinking that Donald Trump was yelling the whole time during his speech. Um, and uh, thinking about sort of like what that looks like um, and what staging is going to look like. So clearly Democrats tried to hew to social distancing guidelines. Um, I want to see if uh, and how the Trump campaign hews to them or deviates from them um, and whether or not that actually does sort of change how we perceive the um, how we perceive the energy in the room, um, how we perceive the energy amongst Republicans broadly. And then also whether or not it actually looks tone deaf in this context, not that President Trump has cared about that up until this particular point, but this might be a, it might, this might be received in a different way than him holding rallies, you know, in very various places against social distancing guidelines. And so I, you know, I, I, I want to see sort of what the delivery looks like. I, I can anticipate what the content is going to look like, but I do wonder what the delivery looks like and how it will be received and whether or not mm. it could be perceived as kind of tone deaf out of place or completely divorced from reality? Well, I think in terms of what we're going to hear next week, I think it's probably still a little bit up in the air. Um, I understand a lot of these details are yet to be worked out at this late hour. Um, but I think uh, based on what President Trump has been saying going into this, uh, and even I watched uh, Laura Ingram last night right after, the, um, right after Biden finished to get a sense of sort of what that the, the – uh, response would be, and she said what I think will be a very typical response of um, some Republicans and of the Trump campaign is that, well, yes, Joe Biden is a nice man. He's a grandpa. We get it. We get it. He had a sad life. But don't be dumb, America. Don't think this is what you're going to get in the White House. You're going to get a cabal of socialists who are going to be doing the dirty work underneath, you know, the gauzy exterior of the sweet grandpa. You're going to get uh, rotting cities, you're going to get uh, socialist policies, they're going to raise your taxes, make illegal immigrants legal immigrants, give them free health care. Um, and I think it will be a very hard attack on um, the rest of the Democratic Party. If not Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, yeah. it will be on everybody else, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders. Like, don't be, literally, Ingram said, they think you're stupid. Don't be stupid. And so um, the president, I think, will drive a very, very hard line on the rest of the Democrats, um, if not Joe Biden, who I think has uh, is now accepted as a good person of very high character. It's the rest of the story that they're warning about. And I think most people really don't expect Joe Biden maybe to have a full eight-year term. What comes next? And I think that's what they will be warning about next week. You know, Bill, uh, Donald Trump is is all about reduction, uh, about 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 boiling down an argument or a, a, a an emotion down to a very very simple thing, and I'm wondering if next week he is going to seize upon the one specific thing that Joe Biden said last night, and that is if he were if he is elected uh, president, he will immediately issue a national mask mandate. And you know how you, you know how, yeah. how 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 that issue has kind of has kind of split Georgia, uh, and 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 motivated uh, a, a big portion of the Republican base that think thinks it's an imposition on their on their personal freedom. I'm I'm betting that we're going to see that rise up next week. All right, um, tell you what, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back. As long as we have Robert Costa with us, I'd love to get his national perspective on the QAnon movement that's gained steam here in Georgia because uh, we now have Marjorie Taylor Greene probably headed to Congress. We'll do that with the whole panel after we pause for these messages. By the way, before the weekends, I really want to give credit again to Jesse Neiswanger, uh, our engineer and composer, who uh, we said, Jesse, come up with some theme music for us for our two weeks of coverage of the Democratic and Republican conventions. And I don't know about you, but I think Jesse did a terrific job. So my thanks to you, Jesse, for doing that. Robert Costa, I know you know Atlanta pretty well. You have family down here, so you've spent time here. 
Um, but you don't have to know Atlanta necessarily well to have some response to the fact that uh, uh, enough people uh, in Georgia, in her congressional district, uh, voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's in a very, very red district, as you know, so she's probably on her way to Congress in January. Meanwhile, in Florida, Laura Loomer, another uh, QAnon advocate, uh, has a tougher struggle, but she too won her nomination in that primary. What? Where is? Let's ask about how QAnon candidates like that may have an impact in a state like Georgia on the presidential race here, which is apparently very close, according to the polling, on the two Senate races here, and especially on our 6th and 7th district congressional races. Will it matter, or are people going to shrug that off? Robert? People may shrug it off in some of these areas. The QAnon conspiracy is something that reflects this American time, because there's such distrust for institutions, for in politics, in business, in the media, that these kind of conspiracy theories, which I don't even know, but in essence, it's about there's a cabal of uh, nefarious people out there exploring and they run the government. I mean, even saying it out loud is, is wild and crazy, but we have to engage it ignore conspiracy theories, but you have to engage it because congressional candidates, as you said, have speculated or even endured this could be true. It is, of course, not true, but we live in a time where baseless statements, conspiracies can and can take hold. And the Republicans in Congress have so far not disavowed, uh, have like Liz Cheney from Wyoming, the leadership she called QAnon uh, something that's disastrous and, and, and terrible in a statement. Uh, but you see Vice President Pence today in an interview saying uh, on Friday, know anything about it. The president has said, I, I hear there are good people who support it. And it comes back to how President Trump has, to use that for the norms. And when you shatter the norms, other things seep in. Jim Kelly Leffler has not rejected it. Kelly Leffler has, to some extent, moved in the direction of supporting Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, right, she's 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 endorsed uh, uh, Greene. So has Doug Collins, uh, her 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 top Republican rival in mm. that in that U.S. Senate race. Uh, what's interesting, Bill, is is I have I haven't punched the the button on the morning jolt yet, but but we've we've got Karen Handel. Uh, quoted on on Marjorie Green in in there, and if if you remember, uh, Green started uh, uh, her 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 electoral ca- calendar in the sixth district, and was persuaded to 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 jump out. So there there already was a dialogue going on between Handel and and Green, and and we've got we've got Handel quoted as saying she's sticking with that. Uh, she says, uh, "I think my position positions there are clear. My values do not align with hers." Uh, uh, but on the other hand, she also says that that my race is the sixth and Green is in the in the fourteenth. So it's not a condemnation, but she's very definitely separating herself from that because uh, I mean, quite frankly, look, you've got that's a that's a that is a highly highly um, volatile uh, electorate in the sixth with 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 white women dominating, and they they I don't think that they're going going to like uh, uh, QAnon very much. Yeah, I think it's also going to put um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, in a terribly difficult position because most likely Marjorie Taylor Greene will be elected to Congress, and her runoff was not really close. I mean, what do you do with a candidate who has been essentially embraced by her district? Um, And I'm sure we will continue to hear more and more about really just these um, malicious, malignant conspiracy theories that she has not only not denounced, but has repeated in many cases as well. Um, And I think, um, you know, as Robert said, when you shatter the norms, other things seep in. At some point, the Republican Party is going to need to start denouncing um, much of this, or else I think that they risk damaging their brand for legitimate candidates and legitimate races, um, or else just force them to spend time and effort effort and mind space and um, their own political capital on something um, that is wildly damaging to most people, uh, to, I'm sorry, to all people of good character. You know, I, this 
shows uh, the simultaneous strengths and weaknesses of political parties just generally. So people have been arguing about this for years. And so we can see how the party has uh, consolidated around Trump. And so in that respect, it has gotten stronger. Um, and so anybody who will scratch Trump's back will get support from him, which is basically why he supports QAnon people, because they support him. Um, it has nothing to do with the substance, even, you know, um, you know, I think that's an afterthought to sort of just say like me. And so I'll go along with whatever theory if that it will advance my cause. Um, but it shows the weakness of party because parties are places that are supposed to recruit. They are supposed to socialize. They are supposed to discipline candidates. Um, and I think the thing that people are worried about with Marjorie Taylor Greene is that she may be unteachable. Maybe that's wrong, and we'll see. But if she doesn't adjust her opinions and a point of view to just norms of decorum within the chamber, then she is going to be Kevin McCarthy's worst nightmare. Um, and so Patricia and I were on last week, and we were talking about this, like she could be the next speed king. And that is problematic, not just for her and for the party, but also for the voters in the district if she gets marginalized and is actually unable to be effective, you know, within committee and within the chamber. Um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how that unfolds. We've only got a couple minutes left. Uh, Jim Galloway, I do want to turn to a, a local issue, well, a Georgia statewide issue, actually. Um, U.S. District Judge Eleanor Ross uh, has now heard a case in uh, which the New Voter Project has uh, said, has, has asked her to extend the state deadline for accepting and counting absentee ballots beyond 7 p.m. on election night. They believe that because of the problems with USPS and uh, the volume of absentee uh, mail-in votes that are likely to come in, that the uh, Secretary of State must extend that deadline. Uh, we, you know, the question becomes giving everybody the right to have their vote count. And the next one is, how long do you extend a deadline before you put the election, as Donald Trump has talked about it, uh, going on endlessly and counting ballots uh, a week or more later? It strikes me that it's an interesting dilemma. Yeah, it's and it's and and and, the, and we've already seen some federal rulings on this. Uh, I think, is, especially in uh, I think it was it was in Wisconsin uh, during in the run up to to their primary. I mean, the whole issue is if you file your if you can get a postmark uh, of of on your ballot that 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 shows that you cast it before seven p.m. On, on election day, should it count? Uh, and so far, we've had a, we've had a number of judges say say yes. We had, but we also had uh, it, it hasn't been applied in Georgia. We had several thousand ballots d disallowed in the primary because they arrived too late. And 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 you know there is a there is a uh, if if your if your vote is dependent on 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 the delivery system. Then, uh, then it does because become, I think, a very sensitive issue. All right, we're going to watch how that unfolds. We are so out of time for the show today. I only have a chance to say, Robert Costa, thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you on Washington Week on GPB TV. Thank you, Patricia Murphy, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Jim Galloway. Thank you. By the way, you want to hear about an interesting uh, uh, interview about Newt Gingrich. Uh, watch and uh, listen to On Second Thought today. They're interviewing Julian Zelizer, whose book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of a New Republican Party, is well worth listening to. We'll be back on Monday with coverage of the Republican Convention. Have a good weekend, and please take care and stay healthy, people. Bye-bye.